Welcome to the teaching ministry of Calvary Port St. Lucie. Let's join lead pastor Mike Wiggins for part two of The Sovereignty of God. Amen. All right, well, in his commentary on Ephesians, uh, the late pastor H.A. Ironside, uh, he talked about the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man when it comes to our salvation. And so in his book, what he did is he painted a picture, and I want you guys to try to uh, just imagine this picture. Uh, He painted the picture of a, a large group of people who were on a road traveling. They were hurrying down a road, and the road was what Jesus called the broad road that leads to destruction. And so this huge group of people, they're on this road, they're obsessed with their sin, they're fixated on their sin, they love their sin. And as they're hurrying um, down this road, there's a door in the distance. And that door leads to another road, a road that Jesus called the narrow road that leads to eternal life. And so on that door in the distant, on the front side of the door, these words could be seen uh, for, for, for everybody on the broad road. And here it is. On the front door to eternal life, the words from Scripture, whosoever will, let him Come. The invitation of God, clearly seen for everybody, an invitation that's based on Revelation chapter 22, verse 17, where it says, and I quote, Whosoever will, let him take of the water of life freely. And so, anybody on this broad road that leads to destruction, um, if anybody would turn and go into that door. You say, how do you do that? You turn to Christ. The only one who can give you the water of life freely. That if anyone would turn into that door and go inside that door, they could be saved. They could be forgiven. But sadly, most of the people on that broad road that leads to destruction, they ignore the sign. Why? Because they're obsessed with their sin. They love darkness rather than light. They love darkness more than light. And so sadly, they persist in their sin. And eventually they die and perish forever. But some on the broad road that leads to destruction, they see the sign, they see the words, and they say, I'm going to accept that invitation. I'm going to turn in. And as they go through that door, the door shuts behind them, and then they turn around and they see these words, chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. You see, when it comes to our salvation, The scriptures emphasize both the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man. Both God's sovereign act of choosing a people for his name and our responsibility to turn to the only person who can save us, and that is Jesus Christ. When it comes to our salvation, the Bible emphasizes both whosoever will and chosen in Jesus Christ. Now, we are in Romans chapter 9 today. And if you know anything about the New Testament, you know that Romans chapter 9 is the 
classic chapter that emphasizes the sovereignty of God in our salvation. And so because Paul emphasizes the sovereignty of God, I chose uh, to name this two-part series, The Sovereignty of God. And as I was thinking about all this, I started to wonder, did I choose that or did God choose that? I don't really know. Now, the last time we were together, we ended in verse 13. Check it out. Romans chapter 9, verse 13. It says in Romans chapter 9, verse 13, as it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. Now remember, if you were with us two weeks ago, um, you know that the idea there in the verse is not that God literally hates anybody, right? We know that God does not literally hate uh, people because John 3.16, right? The most famous verse in the Bible, for God so what? Love the world. That he gave his one and only son that whoever, there's that whosoever again, whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. And so the idea in verse 13 of chapter 9 is this. Jacob I have chosen and Esau I have rejected. In other words, when it came to the Abrahamic covenant, and if you um, weren't here two weeks ago, you can go on the website and listen to this message, or you can download the podcast. But when it came to the Abrahamic covenant, God said it's not going to be Abraham, Isaac, and Esau, and his descendants were the Edomites. No, God says it's going to be Abraham, Isaac, and who? Jacob. Who are the descendants of Jacob? We know it's Israel. God chose Israel. Somebody says, well, why God? And he says, because I have chosen Jacob and I have rejected Esau. Well, can you explain yourself? No. He's God. Why does he have to explain himself to us? You see, what, what we have to understand is that God is sovereign. We are not. And some things, hey, they're just above our pay grade. So we're going to look at verse 13, uh, 14 now. This is where we're going to start today. It says, what shall we say then? Is there, what's the word? Unrighteousness with God. And what's the next two words? Certainly not. You see, some who don't like the fact that God chose Jacob and rejected Esau, some who don't like the fact that God chose Israel and not the Edomites, who, by the way, never had a heart for God, and by the time Jesus came, um, they were nowhere to be found. Some who do not like the fact that God chooses some over others, well, they accuse God of unrighteousness. They would say, well, that's not fair. It's not right that God chooses one over the other. And how does God respond to that? Let's see in verse 15. For he says to Moses, and now Paul quotes Exodus 33, 19. This is God talking. I will have mercy on whomever I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whomever I will have compassion. Here's your next point. Hey, it's God's prerogative to show mercy to whomever he chooses. 
He's God. Somebody says, well, that's not fair. It's not fair that God chooses some over others. It's not fair that he gives mercy to some, but not to others. Do you realize how dumb that statement is? Do I have to remind everybody what the definition of mercy is? Do you guys know what the definition of mercy is? Mercy, here here it is defined. It's not getting what we deserve. Let me say that again in case you're thinking about lunch already, okay? What is mercy? Mercy is not getting what we deserve. Did you know that if God was fair, we'd all perish? I, you know, that's not fair. I just want God to be fair. Are you sure? You sure you want God to be fair? Have we forgotten that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God? Have we forgotten that the wages of sin is what? Death. Both physical death and spiritual death forever in a place called hell. Any sinners in the house? Let me just see your hand if you're a sinner. I'm so glad, 100%. I'll raise two hands, right? The wages of sin is death. Okay, have we forgotten that? But here's what our, our culture of entitlement, our culture of arrogance. You see, our culture does not get the fact that we have deeply offended our creator. They don't give a flip about the creator. In fact, they think they evolved from apes, and there is no creator. But what our culture has to come to grips with is that there is a creator. He did form you in your mama's womb, and every breath that you breathe is because of his grace. And we all have deeply offended him because we've ignored him and because we've chosen to live for ourselves. So the truth is we all deserve death. And God doesn't owe mercy to anybody. God is not required to show mercy to anyone. But if he chooses to extend his mercy to some, that's his prerogative. You know, if you have a shepherd and you have a herd of sheep, let's say 90 sheep, and this herd of sheep decides to run away from the shepherd, and they're all running, but what they don't realize is that they're running down a road that leads to destruction. They're running down a road where there's a cliff that goes into a pit, and they're all running away from the shepherd, and what's the shepherd thinking? Those dumb sheep, (laughs) right? But he loves them, so what does he do? He takes out his whistle. He blows his whistle. There's his border collie. His border collie goes out, and his border collie is able to rein in 30 sheep, and the other 60 go off the cliff. Let me tell you something. As those 60 sheep are falling off the cliff, not a single one of them could say, you should have stopped me too. Why? Because they chose to run from the shepherd. They deserve what they got. And so, hey, if you're a recipient of God's mercy, 
If you're sitting in that blue chair this morning or watching online or on Facebook and you're a recipient of God's mercy and grace, you have a relationship with Jesus Christ, sometime today you ought to get alone, get on your knees and thank God that he revealed himself to you because he didn't have to send his Holy Spirit after you to draw you and to give you forgiveness and grace. He didn't have to do this, but he did because he loves so when it comes to our salvation, man, we should have an attitude of gratitude. And our attitude of gratitude should, should extend beyond our salvation to the person that we're married with, if, if, if we're married, to our children, if God's blessed us with children, to our friends, to our church family. Our attitude of gratitude should extend to our job. God, thank you that I have a job and I get paid every two weeks. Our attitude of gratitude should extend to, God, thank you for my house. Thank you for my car. Thank you for my clothes. Thank you for my food. Thank you, thank you, thank you. That should be our attitude because everything above hell is grace. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, everything above hell is grace. Get rid of the attitude of entitlement. Get rid of the victim's attitude. The fact that you are sitting here today in an evangelical church, hearing the Bible be taught verse by verse is an act of God's mercy and grace on your life. And you should be thanking God because the vast majority of the world doesn't give a flip. The vast majority of the world is on the broad road that leads to destruction. God saved you. He saved you. Or did he save you? Have you chosen to walk through the door that says whosoever will? Look at verse 16. It says, so then it is not of him who wills. The person who says, oh, I just woke up someday and all on my own, I chose Christ. It is not of him who wills nor of him who runs. The person who says, oh, look at all these good works that I do. No, it's none of that. But of, what's the word? God. Salvation's of the Lord. But of God who shows what? Mercy. Here's your next point. If you're a follower of Christ, you didn't enlist. You were drafted. You didn't list. Paul said in verse 16, it's not of him who wills. Again, somebody says, oh, I just woke up someday, uh, one day, and I decided I'm going to choose Christ. Isn't Jesus so blessed to have me? Isn't Jesus so blessed that I chose him? He's so fortunate. Well, wait a minute. Jesus said in John 15, 16, you did not choose me. I chose you. And appointed you to go and bear fruit. The truth is, you didn't enlist, you were drafted. Somebody, or Paul says here in verse 16, um, it's not of him who runs. Somebody says, you know, look at my good life, look at my good works, look at how I've served God. It's you know, more like religion, right? Look at what I have done. I'm running for God. Isn't he fortunate to have me on his team? No, 
Titus 3.5 says it's not by works. Everybody say not by works. You just quoted God. Titus 3.5, not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit. So, hey, ladies and gentlemen, could we just give credit where credit is due? Psalm 115.1 says, not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name we give glory and praise because of your mercy and because of your truth. Look at verse 17. For the scripture says, and Paul's now going to use the famous example of Pharaoh, the ruler of Egypt. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I may show my power in you, and that my name may be declared in all the earth. Therefore, Paul says about God, he has mercy on whom he wills, and whom he wills, he what? Hardens. Okay, you guys remember the story of the Exodus? I don't have to retell that story because it is probably the second most famous story in all the earth, actually. The number one famous story is the story of Jesus Christ. But who doesn't know about God delivering the children of Israel from Egypt and the Red Sea parting? And you know that, that whole story. Now, when Pharaoh, um, the ruler of Egypt, when he came on the scene, he had this idea. He'd walk outside on the porch of his palace He'd look over Egypt and he'd say, look at my nation. Look at the kingdom that I built, right? Look at my fame, uh, my riches, my glory. God would say, wait a minute. Wait a minute, Pharaoh. Pharaoh, I gave you all these things in verse 17. For this very purpose, I have raised you up that I may show my power in you and that my name may be declared in all the earth. Question, how did God show his power through Pharaoh? Answer, through his hard heart. Through Pharaoh's hard heart, God brought Egypt to his knees and he showed his power and his glory to the entire world. God did exactly what he said he would do. Again, The story of the Exodus, one of the most famous stories in all of history. Now, before you think that God just reached down and hardened a good man's heart, you got to look at the story more closely, because when you read it more closely, you find out that Pharaoh hardened his own heart first. That leads to your next point, if you're taking notes. What did God do? What was the role God played? God confirmed Pharaoh's decision as Pharaoh decided to harden his own heart. And so I dug deeper. Here's what I found out, with a little help from my friends called solid Bible commentators, okay? At least 20 times in the story of Exodus, the process of the hardening of Pharaoh's heart is talked about, 20 times in the story of Exodus. Very interesting, 10 times it talks about Pharaoh hardening his own heart, Ten times it talks about God hardening the heart of Pharaoh. Here's what's very interesting. In the early part of Exodus chapter 7, God does tell Moses initially, I am going to harden Pharaoh's heart. He does that. But as the actual story unfolds historically, here's what you need to know. Pharaoh was the first one to harden his heart. In fact, let me ask you this. How many plagues came upon Egypt? Ten. 
okay? After the first five plagues in Exodus chapters 7, 8, and 9, after the first five plagues, here's what happens. Pharaoh hardens his own heart. It's not until the sixth plague, after the sixth plague, that the Bible explicitly uses these words, quote, the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh. So what was God doing? God was just confirming Pharaoh's decision. God said to Pharaoh what Burger King says to its customers, have it your way. Have it your way. God didn't reach down and just harden a good man's heart. That's not our God. But he will if you choose to harden your own heart. He may decide to go ahead and help you. Check out what C.S. Lewis says. I love C.S. Lewis. I only understand about 30% of what I read from him, but anyway. (laughs) There are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, Lord, thy will be done. And those to whom God says in the end, thy will be done. All that are in hell, what's the next two words? Choose it. Without that self-choice, there could be no hell. How's your heart? Are you hardening it against God? Are you only at church today because someone had to drag you here? How's your heart? Are you hardening hardening your heart against the Lord? You got to be careful. God may say to you, have it your way. Listen, hardening your heart purposely against God or his will, that's dangerous ground. And that's why, not once, not twice, but three times at least, in Hebrews chapters 3 and 4, you have this phrase, today if you hear his heart, uh, today if you hear his voice, harden not your heart. Today if you hear his voice, harden not your heart. God's speaking to somebody here today. Today if you hear his voice, harden not your heart. Why? Because a gracious God has decided to send his Holy Spirit to you and to draw you and to give mercy to you. You better respond while you can. And don't believe the nonsense coming from some pulpits that you can reject God your whole life, but as long as you call on the name of the Lord before you take your last breath, you'll be fine. Hey, that might happen if God's merciful enough, but if you choose to keep hardening he may, like he did Pharaoh, step away and say, have it your way. Listen, God's not a little puppet, and we're just pulling the strings. He's a sovereign God. And if he's talking to you today, you need to give your life to Jesus Christ. Look at verse 19. You will say to me then, to the critics, to the people who don't like the fact that God hardens some people, You will say to me then, well, why does God still find fault? For who has resisted his will? I love the way the New Living Translation uh, translates verse 19. Quote, well then, why does God blame people for not responding? Haven't they simply done what he makes them do? Right? In other words, hey, sure, okay, I'll grant it. Pharaoh hardened his heart first, but God still hardened Pharaoh's heart. And after that point, there's no chance. And so, hey, why does God blame people for not responding? Haven't they simply done what he makes them do? I love Paul. 
I love Paul because Paul didn't pull punches. Paul didn't try to explain away God. Some people say, oh, man, I wish Paul was here. I'd love to have a conversation with Paul. Uh, Maybe not. He may rip your head off and rebuke you. (laughs) Paul wasn't afraid of anybody. Paul doesn't try to explain away God. What does he say in verse 20? But indeed, O man, who are you to reply against God? Will the thing formed say to him who formed it, why have you made me like this? Does not the potter have power over the clay from the same lump to make one vessel for honor and another for dishonor? Who are you to question God? It leads you to your next point. When we question God, we take the role of the potter. We put him in the place of clay. Paul says, hey, we don't have the intelligence to question God. He's the potter. We're just the clay. Now, don't raise your hand. Don't say amen, okay? Because I know what the trials that you guys are going through a lot of times are just private. But are you going through a trial? Are you going through a difficulty? Are you bewildered? Are you confused? Have you become disillusioned with God? Right? Now, it's fine with a humble attitude to ask God questions, but it's a whole nother thing with an arrogant attitude to question God. And so if you're going through a tough time or if you've just gone through a tough time, a tough trial, and you've allowed yourself to become angry at God, be very careful, my friend. You are on dangerous ground. If your attitude is, God, this is not fair, if you're raging against God in your heart, this is not fair. Why are you doing this to me? I thought you were a good God. If you choose to arrogantly question God, what you got to understand is that you're putting yourself in the place of the potter and God in the place of clay. And I'm just wondering, do you have the credentials to be a potter? So you're applying for the position of potter. You're applying for the position of the supreme ruler over the universe. I'm just wondering, do you have the qualifications for that position? Are you omnipotent? Are you omniscient? Are you omnipresent? Are you eternal? Are you immutable? Are you self-existent? Are you the creator and sustainer of all things? You see, the truth is, ladies and gentlemen, God is sovereign, we are not. And when bad things happen, listen, listen to the word of God. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God and to those who are the called according to his purpose. That's the verse we take to the bank. And as I said two weeks ago, one of my favorite attributes of God is that he is good. Listen, he has the highest view. You don't. 
If you're taking a helicopter over New York City, in the helicopter, you can see around every corner. But if you're a pedestrian down, you can't see around the corner. God sees around the corner. He sees the whole picture. Listen, humble your heart and just accept what God has chosen to allow happen and recognize him and praise him for the good, sovereign God that he is. Look at verse 22. What if God, wanting to show his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much long suffering? Isn't it interesting that God endures with a lot of patience the vessels of wrath? Now, by the way, quick side note, verses 23 through 24, probably one of the most misinterpreted passages in the entire Bible. So we're going to go slow. We're going to slow down. And with pen in hand, okay, we're going to start over. Get ready to underline some words here. What if God, wanting to show his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath, please underline the word, prepared. Prepared for destruction. And that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy, which, and I want you to underline the next three words, he had prepared beforehand for glory. Even us, whom he called, not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles. Here's your next point. I'm going to take some time to explain this. Those who perish, vessels of wrath, can only blame themselves. But those who are saved, vessels of mercy, can only give credit to Jesus Christ. Now, some people, they they read verse 22, vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, and they come up with the wrong conclusion. Okay? They come up with this wrong conclusion where they say, God predestined some people for hell. God predestined some people for wrath. He made them vessels of wrath. God predestined some people to be saved, and he predestined some people to be damned. Well, my friend, you only got half the equation right. Does God predestine people to be saved? Yes. Does he predestine people to be damned? No. This is where hyper-Calvinism gets way off track. And I believe a lot of what John Calvin said is great and good and biblical, but some of his followers have taken it too far. And it's called the doctrine of double predestination. Double, meaning that God doesn't just predestine people to be saved. He also predestines people to go to hell. And it's a wrong doctrine. It's not biblical. Did you notice that Paul wrote two different things about the vessels of wrath and the vessels of mercy? Let's go back and look at it. Verse 22. What if God, wanting to show his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath? What's the word? Prepared for destruction. Okay. That's the vessels of wrath. But look at the vessels of mercy in verse 23 that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy, which, what's the next three words? He had prepared. Paul didn't say that he had prepared vessels for wrath. He just said he had prepared 
vessels for mercy. What you got to understand, and I'm no Greek scholar, but I do do my homework. And what you got to understand is that the verb prepared in verse 22 is in the middle voice. Greek scholars tell us that that verb is a reflexive action verb. In other words, the subject of the verb is doing it to himself. In other words, verse 22, if you look at it again, God, he has a lot of patience on the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. You can properly interpret that as that vessel of wrath is doing it to himself. It's in the middle voice. It's a reflective action verb there. And so in the context, Pharaoh prepared himself for destruction. Why? Because Pharaoh hardened his heart before God hardened his heart. Am I making sense to you guys? And by the way, quick side note, it's not in the notes, but I think it's very powerful. But after Jesus comes back to this earth, literally, and he judges the nations and he separates the sheep. Sorry, I'm not calling you goats. When Jesus comes back and he separates the sheep from the goats, right, what does he say to the sheep? He says to the sheep, um, come, you blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. They were predestined to be saved. God prepared heaven just for them. What does he say to the goats? Matthew 25, 41. Depart from me, you cursed, into everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. God did not create hell for man. God did not create hell for women. He created hell for the devil and his angels. But men and women will absolutely go to hell if they prepare themselves as vessels of wrath. If they harden their hearts and say, thanks, but no thanks, they'll go to the place God didn't create for them. God created for the devil and his angels. And so, when people end up in hell, is that God's fault? No. Imagine if you just got saved and you still have some friends who don't know the Lord yet. Let's say you have three friends that you found out through the grapevine that they're going to go tonight and they're going to rob the local CVS store. And so you're beside yourself. You love these guys. And so you get in your car and you rush down to the local CVS. It's late at night. It's right before closing. No one's around. There's a parking lot. And there they are sitting in their car, guns in hand. And you get out of your car and you're like banging on the window. Guys, what are you, stupid? You want to rot in prison? Don't do this. You're trying to talk them out of it. But they're ignoring your warnings. And all three of them get out of the car, guns in hand, and they're walking toward the door of CVS. And in desperation, what do you do? You run and literally tackle one of your friends down on the ground. And you're saying to him, don't do this. And he's like, okay, man, okay. And right then, pop, pop. You hear gunfire. He runs away. You call 911. You go into the CVS, and to your horror, you find out that your two friends just murdered two people, the store manager and a shopper, and they run. Later on, the police apprehend them. Months later, they're judged. They're sentenced for the death penalty. And after 12 years on death row, 
both of your friends are executed. Let me ask you a question. Whose fault was it that they were executed? Their own. But what about the guy that you restrained? What about the guy that you saved? Can he walk around and say, it's because I'm such a good person that I got off? Can he say that? It's because I'm such a good person that I wasn't ever charged with a crime. No, he can't say that. What he should do is give you credit for saving him. And in the same way, check it out on the screen again, those who perish can only blame themselves, but those who are saved, hey, we can only give credit to Jesus Christ. He saved us in his mercy. Listen, the one guy you tackled in the parking lot, he can't walk around with his chest out because he had the same sin in his heart that the other two guys had. You and I have to get off our self-righteous kick and realize that all of us are on the broad road that leads to destruction. Thank God he sent his spirit to woo us and draw us and to save us. And Paul is now going to quote because Paul felt like, hey, I need to make sure that these people in Rome, as I'm writing this letter, understand that everything I'm saying is biblical. And so he quotes two Old Testament prophets. He quotes Hosea and he quotes Isaiah. And so check it out in verse 25. As he says also in Hosea, I will call them my people. Context here is that God, I just read this in my devotions. God is talking about the remnant of Israel who he saves by his grace. He says in verse 25, I will call them my people who were not my people and her beloved who was not my beloved and it shall come to pass in the place where it is said of to them, you are not my people. There they shall be called the sons of the living God. The application here that Paul is making is simply this. Hey, in the Old Testament, you had the nation of Israel and the nation of Israel uh, went, old King James, a-whoring after other gods. They turned their back on Yahweh and they went off like Gomer and prostituted themselves spiritually. And God said, I still love you guys. And so I'm choosing in my grace and in my mercy to save a remnant of you. What's the application to the church? It's the same thing with the Gentiles. 99% of us in this room watching online, we're, we're Gentiles. And so God says, just like I chose in my grace to save a remnant of Israel, I am choosing in these last days to save a remnant of Gentiles who don't deserve it. And along the same lines, he says in verse 27, Isaiah also cries out concerning Israel. And if you're looking at verse 27, just say amen here. Okay, got to stick with me all the way to the end here. Though the number of the children of Israel be as the sand of the sea. That's the entire Jewish nation. The remnant, everybody say remnant shall be saved. Pastor Mike, my grandmother is Jewish. She's rejected Jesus as her savior. Will she still go to heaven because she's part of Israel? No. Jesus said to the Jews of his day, unless you believe that I'm the Messiah, you're going to die in your sins. 
So no, the whole nation of Israel will not be saved, but everybody say remnant. A remnant will be saved, verse 28, for he will finish the work and cut it short in righteousness, speaking about the tribulation, because the Lord will make a short work upon the earth. And as Isaiah said before, please get this, unless the Lord of Sabbath had left us a what? Seed, that's the remnant. We, Israel, would have become like Sodom, and we would have become like Gomorrah. In other words, hey, here, here's the thing. Israel says this, unless the, the remnant of Israel says this, the seed, those who are going to be saved, they say this, unless God had intervened, unless God had restrained, unless God had tackled us in the CVS parking lot, we all, the whole nation of Israel, would have been wiped out like Sodom and Gomorrah. And we all know what Sodom and Gomorrah was famous for. That's Israel talking. The whole nation of Israel wiped out like Sodom and Gomorrah. But God in his mercy decided to save a remnant. The application to us Gentiles in the New Testament age is the same. Unless God decided to restrain you and me. And I think back of the stupid awful stuff I used to do before I knew Jesus that I blush at to this day. He could have left me there and I would have been wiped out like Sodom and Gomorrah. But God said, like Hosea says to Gomer, I love you. I know you've prostituted yourself. I'm inviting you back. If you're thankful for a God of mercy and grace who's reached down and saved you because it's about him reaching down, not about you reaching up, can you just put your hands together and let him know how thankful you are? He's so awesome. So here's my conclusion. We're all on the broad road that leads to destruction, but there's a door in the distance the front side of that door says, whosoever will, let him come. If you'll accept the invitation, turn to Christ and receive him, you'll go through the door and one day in heaven, you'll turn around and you'll see these words on the back side of the door. All along, you are chosen before the foundation of the world. I'm going to ask you guys to bow your heads, please, and close your eyes. One of the greatest gifts God can give his children is the assurance of their salvation. If you're not sure where you stand with God, we want to help. Visit our website at www.calvarypsl.com. Click on Home, then Knowing Christ.